No one can predict the future. However, one can ascertain a reasonable sense of what might occur in the near future due to what has happened in the past. After emancipation was fully secured in 1865, especially with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, black people suffered Jim Crow segregation and political disenfranchisement in the South and limited opportunities in the North. The success of the Civil Rights Movement from 1955 to 1965 defeated the racist regime in the South, but faltered in the second phase that warranted to provide jobs and eliminate poverty in northern ghettos. The limited success of the movement lulled the new black middle class into a false sense of security. They did not think that the rise of the new right, along with the Reagan administration, would be blatantly hostile to the civil rights agenda newly won. They were wrong and naive. Having deadened their antenna, African Americans did not develop a new warning system in the post-civil rights era. This is From Black Power to Black Trauma, a pod series about phantom politics and its offshoot, Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. Had black leadership been more strategic thinking and historically attuned, they might have hedged their bets and realized that integration had its limits if they had no independent political base, and that a retrenchment might occur, and it did. Had blacks developed an autonomous, independent intellectual infrastructure, think tanks, political clubs, media, outside of the two-party system, they might have been better organized to deal with some of the reversals of the post-civil rights era. Since the end of the Reconstruction period, African Americans have produced political leaders and thought leaders who have mostly come from the newly emerging black middle class black middle class, black bourgeoisie, the talented 10. This straddle will be the focus of this episode, the transformation of the talented 10. W.E.B. Du Bois argued in The Souls of Black Folks, the Negro race, like all races, is going to be saved by its exceptional men. The problems of education then among Negroes must first of all deal with the talented 10. It is the problem of developing the best of this race that they may guide the mass away from the contamination and death of the worst in their own and other races. This was the uplift mission statement of the up-and-coming black middle class, the black bourgeoisie that Du Bois sought to cultivate. While Du Bois thought that the industrial education advocated by Booker T. Washington of the Tuskegee Institute had its merits, He took issue with Washington's advocacy of such at the expense of basic civil rights. If one didn't have civil rights, one can't protect one's economic rights. By the 1920s, there arose a new iteration of the Talented Tenth, the New Negro. Its fixture was the Harlem Renaissance, and it made a distinction between itself and the Old Negro. This was a literary movement more so than a political and educational one, wrote Alan Locke in Enter the New Negro. With this renewed self-respect and self-dependence, the life of the Negro community is bound to enter a new dynamic phase, the buoyancy from within compensating for whatever pressure there may be of conditions from without. 
the migrant mass is shifting from countryside to the city, hurdled several generations of experience at elite. But more important, the same thing happens spiritually in the life attitudes and self-expression of the young Negro in his poetry, his art, his education, his new outlook. The talented tenth of men and women who were the leadership class that eventually defeated roughly 100 years of Jim Crow segregation, 10 years from 1955 to 1965. But something happened to this leadership class as it was able to avail itself to the new opportunities provided by the destruction of Jim Crow segregation and second-class citizenship. It stopped leading. Martin Kilson in Transformation of the African-American Intelligentsia, 1880-2012, offers a useful topology in mapping the stages of the professionally educated modern African-American intelligentsia. He cites four phases, formative, elite social development, elite maturation, and elite normalization. Formative phase. From the 1870s to the 1920s, according to Kilson, this formative phase saw the rise of the first generation of black Americans to acquire middle-class attributes during the Reconstruction period. However, this was a skin-color-obsessed African-American elite from the late 19th century into the first three decades of the 20th century. Here's a taste of that skin-color obsession. Skin color, ivory, cream, beige, wheat, tan, mocassin, fawn, cafe au lait, and the paler shades of honey, amber, and bronze are best. Sienna, chocolate, saddle brown, umber, burnt or raw, and mahogany work best with decent to good hair and even to keen features. In these cases, the woman's wardrobe must feature subdued tones. Bright colors suggest that she is flaunting herself. Generally, for women, the dark skin shades like walnut, chocolate brown, black, and black with blue undertones are off-limits. Dark skin often suggests aggressive, indiscriminate sexual readiness. At the very least, it calls instant attention to your race and can incite demeaning associations. From Negroland by Margot Jefferson The second phase he termed the elite social democratization phase, which began in the 1920s and ended by the 1950s. The phase saw the rise of the New Negro movement in which progressive black intellectuals, writers, actors, lawyers, and academic school teachers, and others, challenged the skin-color-obsessed elitism of the formative phase. This era saw the rise of black consciousness and elevated the ideological and cultural status of blackness. The third phase, the elite maturation, ran from the middle of the 1960s into the 21st century. This phase saw the rise of growing new black middle class and political class due to the destruction of Jim Crow segregation and the effect of the civil rights movement. As of 2010, African Americans had 10,000 elected black officials and a black president. This phase also underscores the beginning of black class fragmentation. The last phase, Elite normalization is a developmental period encompassing the current era in which mainstream elements in the African-American intelligentsia experience a slow but steady systemic incorporation in American life and institutions. 
Intelligentsia, what is it? People who belong to occupations that focus fundamentally on the manipulation of symbols that have a direct bearing on uh, the larger meanings that people attribute to their lives and activities. Rob Baskerville, professor of sociology at City University of New York. His fields of interest are the sociology of social movements and cultural movements, as well as the sociology of intellectual. And in addition, intellectuals also concern themselves at their most political with the discrepancy between the ideal vision of society and the real societies in which we live for the purpose of trying to figure out legal points that we can transform them in ways that come closer to matching our ideal. While I thought that Kilson's book offered a useful overview of how the black intelligentsia changed through certain stages, Rob wasn't impressed. One of the things that strikes me as sort of insufficient about Kilson's discussion, and in particular the typologies that he formulates in order to capture the transformation of the Black intelligentsia, is that they, in my judgment, are far too abstract to give us any kind of real handle, I think, on the actual content of the ideologies that um, move Black political life during this particular time period. The second phase, called the elite social democratization, which began in the 1920s and ended by the 1950s, included a greater number of progressive intellectuals. I find that the designation of the second phase as the social democratic orientation phase, you know, that's nice so far as it goes, but I think it papers over a lot of serious differences over the question of which way forward that really um, pits Black intellectuals against one another. As stated earlier, the third phase is elite maturation. Now that, I mean, I find that compelling because essentially what he's talking about, and I think he mentions here, uses these specific terms, the incorporation of elites into the uh, main institutions. Mm-hmm. That serve as the basis for their, you know, their occupational um, work and activities. And in that sense, you know, I'd largely agree. I think um, that's consistent with the whole line of analysis that you know well that suggests that one of the things that has led to the kind of deradicalization of the American intelligentsia and the and the African American intelligentsia in particular over the course of the 20th century is their incorporation into the the university system, the narrowing of audience, the, um, you know, improvement of lifestyle and and finances, all of which, you know, um, cause people to make their peace with with the status quo, with the existing order. Then we spoke about certain terms, Black middle class, the talented tenth, the Black bourgeoisie, by the by the black middle class, I mean, I would just use the standard sociological definition. Mm-hmm. I'd say that roughly people who um, are making on the low end, about 65 plus thousand um, mm-hmm. per single person, you know, double that for a family of two. One of the um, stablest elements of the black middle class today is our so- civil servants. Um, who are often employed in occupations that don't require a high degree of 
um, formal education, but nevertheless, um, often put them at the top or very close to Black mm -hmm. professionals. In a modern society, well-educated, middle-class persons must assume some degree of leadership in order for um, Black society to successfully deal, I think, with the constant rapid changes that are part and parcel of the modern capitalist economy, right? I mean, I think what's important here, and I think the <laughs> many have accused the boys of a kind of elitism that values education for education's sake. And I don't think they uh, this truly grapples with the momentous changes that are taking place in American society at this time. Du Bois often found sent, felt a deep sense of ambivalence about um, the talented tenth and its transformation, not into a leadership group, but a kind of bourgeoisie that looked to exploit um, the black masses that they purported to represent as so many other bourgeois um, classes in the past. I think Du Bois in about 1947 or so um, delivers a lecture where he revisits the concept of the talented 10th and bemoans the fact that he did not truly appreciate the degree to which well-educated people might simply shirk any broader moral responsibility for the, for the collectivity and simply um, use their skills and talents to, you know, for their own enrichment, line their own pockets, which would be the American way. This brings into focus Martin Luther King. What was he? Black middle class, talented 10th, black bourgeoisie, all rolled into um, one. You know, a very interesting kind of um, formulation. Um, certainly King's um, background in one of Atlanta's most established churches mm -hmm. um, that really did, um, if memory serves me correct, cater to uh, well-to-do middle-class parishioners. He does represent, you know, at least hail from that background. Right. Um, but on the, on the other hand, I mean, in some respects, King is the sort of critical prophet, if you will, that really takes the black bourgeoisie as much as the greater American bourgeoisie to task for values that place, again, their own personal enrichment above the well-being um, of the, the greater community. Um, so, in that sense, I think it kind of, you know, brings them into tension with some of these more conservative forces. Um, moreover, his flirtation with socialism, I think, bespoke the need for intellectuals to devise new models of economic development um, that, you know, sort of broke with some of the worst, most predatory aspects of conventional capitalism. Was King the last of the talented tent, the sort of race man or race woman who uplifted the masses rather than leaving them behind? Despite the successes of the new black middle class, which flourished due to integration, by the 1980s and 1990s, this black middle class, as argued by Charles T. Banner Haley in The Fruits of Integration, was in crisis. After more than two decades of growth and relative stability and relative prosperity, the black middle class was in crisis, 
Part of the crisis was as old as the black middle class itself. Political confusion, a dilemma of identity, and alienation from the larger black community. But as the 20th century moved towards a close, the black middle class found itself in a more precarious situation. The situation rose not so much from the gains of the 60s as by the failure to devise new ways to maintain a healthy tension between individual and group needs and demands and to envision ways of moving beyond those liberal successes to address fundamental flaws in American society. When black intellectuals and activists gathered in 1905 to initiate the Niagara Movement, which eventually led to the creation of the NAACP, they did so with less resources and standing than today's iteration of black intellectuals. Yesterday's black intelligentsia had a mission of uplift in regard to assisting the black masses as well as challenging the accommodations policies advocated by Booker T. Washington. Yet, Today's era of black intellectuals, buoyed by positions at elite universities and celebrity status, are capable of doing less, despite having more resources available than their predecessors. Hence, the crisis is masked by becoming the academic sector of the professional managerial class. It's theoriocracy, an updated version of what Zora Neale Hurston once called the niggerati. For my part, I take the responsibility of the African-American intellectual. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., 1992, at Harvard. And of our generation, particularly, those of us who were undergraduates in the late 60s, when institutions such as Harvard decided to, quote unquote, open up and train a new black elite, all of that, of course, in quotation marks. A forum was held by the Kennedy School of Government Institute of Politics, Harvard University, on November 29, 1992, weeks after the election of Bill Clinton. The responsibility of the intellectual in the age of crack featured Bell Hooks, Henry Louis Gates, Cornell West, Glenn Lowry, Reverend Eugene Rivers, and Margaret Burnham, moderated by Kwame Anthony Appiah. This was in response to Eugene Rivers addressing this question in the 1992 issue of the Boston Review. The general thrust of the forum, which can be found on YouTube, as what was the role of today's black intellectual and the black middle class? In regard to the black masses, had they become separated from them due to the successes of the civil rights movement? Ideas and statements regarding alienation, commodification, guilt, and the acquisition of homosocial bonding when Cornell West and Eugene Rivers got to a verbal tussle were bandied about. Gates made an interesting statement about the role of today's intellectual. I take our responsibility, in part, to produce new organizational structures where the kinds of analysis necessary for long-term change in this society can take place. Rivers speculated on the sense of alienation between the black haves and black have-nots. We have to ask ourselves the question, those of us who have the class privilege and the access to do these kinds of things in these kinds of places, to what extent has, to what extent have we contributed to the negative social forces in our community to the extent to which we've segregated ourselves, leaving a weak social group mm -hmm. defenseless. And as a consequence, left to their own devices, they do all these negative things that we then turn around and lecture them against as we ensure that they never get close to us. The three most interesting ideas that could have been applied were voiced by Bell Hooks, Glenn Lowry, and Eugene Rivers. 
Hooks suggested possible mechanisms in which well-off blacks could pool their financial resources to help distressed blacks. The question for me then is how do we share our resources within diverse black communities? And I see that as a concrete um, question. We need to look at productive models in those domestic contexts where people are trying to talk about how do you share resources effectively without further disenabling. Bell Hooks's idea wasn't far-fetched since blacks did that in the aftermath of emancipation when newly emancipated slaves set up burial and mutual aid societies. Glenn Lowry, however, was concerned about black children in foster care. There are tens upon tens of thousands of children, for example, who are in foster care, who don't have homes. Now, you can talk about a tenuous middle class, and that's true, but those um, people who are one paycheck away nevertheless have the capacity to nurture, support, and love these children. We ask ourselves as black people, what are our responsibilities? Well, surely those responsibilities include the seeing after those children. Half jesting, but with serious insight, Reverend Rivers talked about black intellectuals using their celebrity status as a means to mobilize and educate. We've got celebrities up here. How do we mobilize your celebrity status so that we can produce an infrastructure so that those who opt for whatever reasons to live on the ground, in the bush, working with Leroy and Raheem, right, have the kinds of resources so that you do your thing, and it's cool, because we got to have everybody everywhere, right? But there is an infrastructure that says that Raheem and Katrina and Rashida, right, they have resources coming to them that are provided by our celebrity intelligentsia who got the, you know, the, the access. Given how post-civil rights generations of blacks are influenced by celebrities and social media, Rivers called for using the influence of celebrities, whether academic, hip-hop, film, or athletes, to mobilize have borne fruit when one considers the rise of Donald Trump via media and social media. Yet nothing in regard to these possible ideas offered by this interaction of black intellectuals at this forum was ever moved on. Despite greater resources, the post-civil rights generation of black intellectuals especially those who consider themselves insurgent, oppositional, or critical, lack the imagination to create new forms of mobilization or popular organizations. Some have commiserated about the limits, the enforced boundaries of academia, in that it blocks them off from people whom they would like to reach, which begs the question then, why did they become academics? Why haven't they formed new mechanisms to deliver since they are the smartest ones in the room. Yeah, but, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a double movement, though, right? Because... Adolph Reed, professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. As a couple of cohorts were moving into the academy, uh, you know, extramural left politics was drying up completely. This drying up period was from the early 70s to the mid-70s. On our side of the color line, black power or the forms or the expressions of radical politics that came, came out of black power just were not up to the challenge, right? Uh, and, and these got incorporated um, into um, the functioning of, of the new black political class or uh, the foundation world or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so, so it's a combination of, of, of the university culture. 
While speaking about his most recent book, The South, we turned on the issues facing the intelligentsia when it enters the academy. That has had its own pathologies, uh, uh, among which is uh, the conviction that doing your academic work is not just related to doing a left politics, but is substantively a left politics, which means, among other problems, that careerism, right? right, right there's no um, uh, break uh, on, on your careerism, because as you know, uh, the one thing that a kind of fancy education does for you is it gives you the wherewithal to rationalize anything that, that you're trying to do as being for the greater good. One would think, however, that such rationalization would have led this academic left to establish think tanks to counter those on the right. Why not? The first thing, I guess, is that to have a think tank, you'd have to have a policy agenda that you're concerned with. And I don't think they have one, right? Uh, just more and more appointments. Um, and uh, um, so, but I mean, that's an interesting question. That today's black intelligentsia has no agenda is telling. But what it truly means is that its agenda is not the same as that of the black working class and black poor. And that the black communitarian ethos that the boys foster via the talented tent has ended. Rather than being able to mobilize a Du Boisian black communitarian ethos, which collapsed due to the success of the 1960s destruction of Jim Crow segregation, which allowed the black middle class to grow and prosper, while deindustrialization decimated the black working class. The black intelligentsia today is incapable of political or educational mobilization. Despite greater resources, the post-civil rights generation of the black intelligentsia, especially those who consider themselves insurgent, oppositional, or critical, lack the imagination to create new forms of mobilization or popular organization. Some have commiserated about the limits, the enforced boundaries of traditional academia, in that it blocks them from contacting or communicating with the very people whom they claim they want to reach, which begs the question, why did they become academics? On the other hand, this has allowed allegedly insurgent or oppositional academics to think they are edgy or transgressive because they have learned to fly the code of theory. Instead of leadership, it, the theoriocracy, offers theory. Trauma, a medical concept appropriated by academics and literary departments and important to social sciences has become a theoretical trope to describe the wounds of a specific group or class of people. It has evolved as a theoretical trope in academic and popular books. Thinking that they're edgy, insurgent, or transgressive, but they're merely a part of the fourth phase, elite normalization. At universities, they are merely being brought more and more into the mainstream element. This is merely evidence of a steady systemic incorporation into American life and institutions. Arguably, this shows a steady and slow incorporation, but it also underscores an inability and or unwillingness to think and act beyond yesterday's formulas. 
Such systemic incorporation embodies the development of the Black professional managerial class, which encompasses academic entrepreneurship as well as theory production, creating a new class of intellectuals, market intellectuals. And Ta-Nehisi's Coates notes from the sixth year, we were eight years in power, Coates wrote about the role of the public intellectual. By then, the title public intellectual had been attached to me, and I saw what came with it was not just the air of the dilettante, but the air of the solutionist. The black public intellectual need not be wise, but better have answers. There were dissenters in the tradition. There was Derek Bell, for instance. But mostly, I felt the expectation that if I was writing or talking about problems, I should be able to identify an immediate actionable way out, preferably one that could garner a 60-vote majority in the Senate. There was a kind of insanity to this, like telling doctors to only diagnose that which could immediately and effectively cure. But that was the job of the black public intellectual, not to stimulate, not to ask questions that kept them up at night, not to even just to interpret the drums, but to interpret them in such ways that promise redemption. This was not work for writers and scholars who thrive in privacy and study, but performance prophets who live for the roar of the crowd. Performance prophet? Now who does that sound like? I want to thank my guests, Rob Baskerville, Carolyn Rankle, who read the Negro Land passage, and Adolph Reed. I will be having a more extensive conversation with Adolph Reed in the next few episodes. This has been From Black Power to Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. Thank you for listening. <laughs>